today on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, a former conservative political pundit here in Kentucky apologizes for ever somehow helping Trump get elected, in which he simultaneously overstates his own importance while pointing out his own ignorance, which leads us to a question. Will Kentucky ever be able to rid ourselves of Republicans that have a loser mindset? The legislature has made it clear that school choice amendment is a top piece of legislation for this upcoming year. Bashir, of course, is having none of that. Then for our podcast only listeners, normally at this point of the year, I would be able to discuss several pre-filed bills with you. But leadership in the legislature has decided that lawmakers cannot file bills early anymore. We'll go over why this move points to just how much the leadership in the House and Senate here in Kentucky hates its citizens having opinions on what they're doing. We'll have all that and more to on today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. And for those of you listening on YouTube, a Twitter, a Facebook, a Rumble, I encourage you, please check out the podcast format. You can listen to it on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple, iHeart, uh, uh, Amazon, um, Pandora, you know, anywhere you listen to podcasts at, go ahead and listen to the Andrew Cooperwriter show. You'll be able to catch that last segment there and you're able to take it with you on the go. For those of you listening to the podcast format, please make sure you leave a five-star review on the platform you're listening on, uh, Apple or Spotify. Just leave that five-star review. It's easy to do. It's a simple thing to do. You know I sit here day after day, five days a week, giving you the news and political information you need. The least you could do is leave a review and tell others about it. If you're sitting next to someone, tell them, hey, listen to the Andrew Cooperwriter show. If you're politically involved, ask your other politically involved friends, hey, are you checking out the Andrew Cooperwriter show? Did you hear what he talked about last time? Those types of things spread the word. They spread the podcast. They grow it. And by growing it, we can make a larger impact on what's going on here in Kentucky. Without further ado, let's dig into it. I apologize. That is the name of an article wrote for the Kentucky Lantern by a former columnist and political pundit, supposed conservative columnist and political pundit named John David Deitch, Dice, Diths. I'm going to be honest. I have no clue uh what how to say that last the last name of that man right there um i've no clue i've never heard it before in fact because of my age or maybe because i really didn't pay attention till state to uh state politics here in kentucky till about 2018 i've never heard that name before here recently in this article he wrote and so he writes this apology talking about how he's helped get Trump elected through uh, the work he did uh, supporting, I guess, the GOP as a pundit here in Kentucky. But I have to wonder if he really ever made a tangible impact at all from the very simple fact that I've literally never heard his name before. So clearly this article is therefore an intent by a man apparently who has lost all relevance in Kentucky politics to somehow become relevant again. Now, to his credit, he has, albeit for being yet another Republican from a bygone era of people with a losing mindset, he's made himself relevant again, at least enough that I've now heard his name and I'm going to talk about his article and talk about the type of person he is. 
because he's the type of person who romanticizes their own thoughts about the Reagan presidency without admitting to themselves they probably never supported Reagan at all, or at least not until he became president. Someone who says Reagan was a great president by looking at the numbers, but never actually bothered to understand what made Reagan uh, so great after all. He was a man of action, a man hated by the Republican establishment, a man hated because he didn't check all those perfect political boxes, the boxes that people like John David Dice, 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 whatever his last name is, those boxes that he cares about. He wasn't the president of the young Republicans at some point. He didn't pay his political dues and turning under some Republican senator. He wasn't Mitch McConnell's attorney. Something, by the way, three uh, of our top candidates for statewide offices have all been at some point. Now, he, he didn't check those boxes. And because he didn't check those boxes, he was hated. Now, like then, the GOP is going through a realignment. A realignment away from a losing mindset of playing prevent defense in politics and a realignment of voters who are tired of losing. I'm not talking about losing elections. I'm talking about losing their country, their state, their lives, their incomes, their futures. And when I talk to a Politico and I say, wow, Kentucky Republicans really have been losing, they look around, they say, what do you mean? We win all kinds of elections. But winning elections doesn't matter. It's about what you do after you win those elections. And the fact of the matter is that the Republican legislature in Kentucky took over control in January of 2017. And since then, the net result has been higher spending and a higher tax burden on the individuals. Now, Republicans, of course, in the legislature will claim they cut uh, taxes, and they claim that because, of course, of the income tax cuts they've made, but they've added categories to our sales tax, and they've brought in more revenue, something you can only do, something if you have a little bit of brain power, you know means they have to have raised that tax burden by increasing taxes, fees, and licenses, and other places. We get half measures on everything from CRT to economic development. They promise to deregulate that Republicans say, yet never comes to Kentucky, as Kentucky is, bureaucratically speaking, one of the worst states to do business in, as far as the bureaucratic process goes, as far as filing fees and, and where you have to file them and who you have to uh, ask to get those things taken care of, and, and just generally the computer systems and the whole process of it. And I'm telling you, as a person who has LLCs in Kentucky, and I own LLCs in other states, I can tell you right now, Kentucky is one of the, if not the hardest states to file in and have a business license in or or uh, file your LLC in for the state and to then move forward by paying all your taxes, fees, and licenses. It's absolutely awful. There's a reason why you'll talk to these national companies and they'll try to be registered perhaps in Texas or Delaware or Wyoming or some of these other places, but you never hear them saying, let's register in Kentucky. It's the best place for us to register our business because it's not. And yet undoing those things would help our economic development, making our business processes more streamlined and changing the way we do those licenses. But yet instead, our Republican legislature has felt fit, instead of doing economic development the way Republicans promised to, getting government out of the way, instead they've decided to give hundreds of millions of dollars to privately held companies in cash in order to get them to come to Kentucky.
Now, this former pundit, uh, uh, John David Dyth, this former pundit, John David Dyth, um, I'm sorry, I had to recheck his name again. I, I already forgot his name. Um, you know, I have show notes as I'm going through this, and I wrote David down. I'm like, I swear his name was John David something. But this former pundit, John, still has that losing mindset that if things aren't decided by rich men in back rooms drinking bourbon while they play chess with other people's lives, well, that's just too uncivilized for him to handle. His desire for the corrupt, untransparent, and good old boy political system to remain around has driven him blind to the facts of the situations. And maybe as a pundit, he claimed to be about transparency and calling out corruption. I don't know. I didn't read anything he has wrote other than this right here. But really, I don't need to. Because if this is his magnus opus, his last breath, his comeback, his hope to be relevant again, if this article is an indicator of his ability to critically think and follow facts, well, then all of his other writings must be complete and utter garbage, and his entire body of work must be called under question. Now, for some of my listeners, you may know exactly who this guy is, and maybe you're saying, Andrew, you're passing judgment. You don't know him. He's really important. He did some great work. You're just too young to understand. Well, let me read off a few quotes from his articles and see if I can't make a case for why I'm right. And of course, if you have no idea who this guy is, well, me just going over this will tell you everything you need to know about him. Here's one of the first lines from when you get down to the meat of his article of his little opinion piece he wrote. He says, Republicans who had professed love of freedom and abhorrence of authoritarianism and tyranny nominated Trump, an unprincipled demagogue who colluded with and openly sought and accepted help from Russia and its strongman, Vladimir Putin. And this one line, he calls Trump an authoritarian and a tyrant. Now, at any point of this in this article, does he provide proof of Trump's supposed tyranny? What does he define as tyranny? What does he point to and say that is tyranny? No, he doesn't, and he can't, and he won't, because the truth is Trump deregulated. Trump provided more press access than Joe Biden or Obama did. He didn't attempt to use the FBI to go after his political enemies. The man that is currently under several indictments across the country based upon novel legal theories. A former president under indictment based upon novel legal theories. And John's twisted mind is the tyrant in all of this. Trump didn't start any wars. In fact, he attempted to de-escalate and end wars. That doesn't sound like a tyrant. Then to cap it all off, he proclaims the Trump-Russia collusion storyline lie, something that has long since been de debunked and nothing more than a Clinton-fueled uh, Clinton lie campaign that came out of the Clinton campaign. Russiagate never happened. John needs to turn off MSNBC. He clearly doesn't have an original or thoughtful conclusion. If He didn't even bother to research his article or, or point out anything that he's talking about. Because if he had, he maybe would have figured out that Trump never colluded with Russia. Or he would have maybe been able to point to what was so tyrannical about Trump to begin with. Because, of course, maybe I'm not his, his pointed audience. But I've got questions. I'm pretty well informed. I'd like to know exactly what he thinks that Trump did that was so tyrannical. Or how does he think Trump colluded with Russia? 
Now, after this, John uh, goes on to say, Trump played footsie with dictators he obviously admired while undermining America's key alliances with Democratic friends. You know what I know? Russia didn't invade Ukraine while Trump was in office. Israel wasn't at war with Gaza and Hamas and worried about going to war with Iran. China and Taiwan wasn't really a concern. I didn't really hear that all, all often talked about. I mean, what's next, John? You're going to claim Trump almost started a nuclear war. You know, that common story. Trump almost brought us to nuclear war. Trump was going to bring us to nuclear war while ignoring the fact that the neocon warmongers in our own party, like Lindsey Graham, are trying to start a war with Iran and want to keep pushing on Russia, an actual nuclear country, a country with nuclear warheads. Now, John goes on to say Republicans who had pretended to judge people on the content of their character stayed mute at the hateful and hate-filled Trump routinely practiced cruelty, misogyny, racism, and xenophobia with sickening relish. And there it is. The old classic Trump is a big old mean racist and hated people from other countries because he simply wanted to care about America first. You know, the ones who are actually paying the taxes and the ones that the government is actually supposed to represent. If we ask John for an actual example of racism and xenophobia, John probably has nothing to say, or he might point to bans coming from countries around the world that have nothing, people coming from third world countries around the world or places where we can't do good background checks, places where we banned immigration from for national security, perhaps during the pandemic, or perhaps because of a Muslim terror states that the country represented. You now caring about America first, but that's not good enough for John. He can't point to racism or xenophobia. He doesn't provide any evidence, nothing that we can debate, nothing for his readers to critically think about and say, well, was that racist? Was that xenophobia? Was that wrong to do? No. He doesn't have an answer. I mean, clearly a person who still spouts Trump Russiagate and says things are much better with us almost at war with countries rather than Trump being nice with other countries to avoid war and conflict doesn't actually research what they're saying or critically think about it. He expects us to buy it. He expects us to buy into the fact that he just must be some expert and we should take everything he says at face value. As I said, I guess we're not his audience. The liberals in Kentucky are now his audience. That's who he's trying to find acceptance from because he no longer has relevance in the GOP and he's just struggling and hoping that people will remember his name. At one point, John really falls off a cliff deciding to show his name-calling chops, his ability to pull out the dictionary and a thesaurus and his name-calling chops, this, the, this tirade he goes on in this article, would make any white wig-wearing elitist of old proud to stand beside him now. And to quote him from the article, this is what he says. He says, to stand with silently, to stand with or silently tolerate Trump and Trumpism is to effectively support his bigotry, criminality, demagoguery, despotism, hate, hypocrisy, ignorance, indecency, insurrection, irrationality, lying, narcissism, proto-fascism, sacrilege, sedition, venality, violence, and vulgarity. He said all that in one stream. You lint liquor. <laughs> Reminds me of that old Orbit commercial. Anyways, 
So how does David and his Lincoln Project MSNBC talking point field article where he blathers nonsensically all the bad adjectives he can think of about Trump or providing absolutely nothing as evidence to point to in order to back up his Trump derangement syndrome hissy fit. How does he end this? He ends this by saying this. Trump is not merely dangerous. He is evil. There, This is not something I say lightly, but it must be said. It remains difficult to understand and accept that so many Republicans support, even worship this bad man, but they do. And they will, no matter what, the party of Lincoln, not to mention Theodore Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan, is now thoroughly and irredeemably the party of Trump. American constitutional democracy is at great risk as a result. By my past public support of the Republican Party and its craven Trump collaborators, I, to some degree, helped it happen. For that, Kentucky, I apologize. Well, John David Dice, Dice, Dith, or however you say your last name, you don't have to apologize. Your contributions aren't felt. You didn't help us. We didn't win the House in Kentucky until Trump came in. And, coat, and people in, in our House were able to coattail in order to gain our current majority. Let me give you an example. In 2004, there were 57 Democrats in the House, in the State House. And in 2014, two years before Trump, there was 54. Then Trump in 2016, and Republicans now had a 64-seat majority. Went from 46 to 64. Because of Trump. Was it because of John wasn't because of his loser mindset Republicans. It was that majority that they floated in on. It was Republicans' coattails they rode in on. And yet he apologizes for pushing him forward and helping to make that happen. You didn't help make anything happen. We didn't become a majority because of anything you did, John. You didn't help. Now, Trump was able to do this because maybe people and the type of Republicans we have now, maybe they're voted on by people who are tired of getting screwed around by people like John, who, who prefer to have politicians that sit in oak paneled rooms voicing angry retorts about the masses of people who just don't understand how government works. Y'all can go back to pushing the idea that you're in the adults in the room. And I'll go back to pushing for conservatives that get things done and win, not only in elections, but win in policy, win in getting our country and our state back. And now that I've made every red coat political spit out their tea as they listen to this young upstart, even though I'm in my 30s, now that I've made them spit out their tea, understand this. Not saying this about John because I'm an always Trumper. I'm not. I can point out where Trump has gone wrong at times, both in policy and endorsements. I can give you actual examples, such as the bump stock man uh, going after um, Massey for forcing Congress to vote on the relief package in person during COVID, not firing Fauci. Those are missteps he made, and I know the man isn't perfect. But I'll tell you what, the net result on my life by Trump presidency was a whole heck of a lot better than Bush, Obama, or Biden. And I've seen what kind of neocon warmongers we could have had for presidents with McCain and Romney. 
Now, I'm not saying this because of a blind Trump allegiance. Anyone who follows the show knows I have no allegiance to any politicians at all. And I have no qualms about calling out uh, any of them when they do something that is wrong. I'm saying this about John because he is a fool who apparently isn't able to think for himself or come to an original thought. Now, coming up, as the legislature makes clear, school choice amendment will be a priority for the upcoming session. Bashir reiterates his opposition to it, sorry, saying it sends money to unaccountable schools. We'll take a look at his comments after this short break. The best non-magnet public school in Kentucky, middle school, in reading proficiency, is W.B. Munch Elementary, which covers K through 8th grade. And their reading proficiency is 69%. And their math proficiency is 54%. Meaning that the percentage of kids, 69 and 54, are where they should be at, at that grade level. The lowest performing, non-special education standard public school, middle school in Kentucky is McGoffin County High, which covers 7th through 12th grade, where just 19% of kids are proficient in reading and only 9% are proficient in math. The best we can hope for in Kentucky from standard public schools is 69% in reading or in public school terms, in school terms, K through 12 terms, a D. Objectively, therefore, our public schools in Kentucky are failing our students. That the most we can hope for is a D they're failing by their own definition of grades. And it's not a money issue as much as the left loves to mash their teeth about it. At or above proficiency level in Jefferson County schools, where they spend over $20,000 a student. According to the National Center for Educational Statistics, their reading proficiency level is 26%. So we have failing schools, money can't seem to fix it. And so Kentucky, like many, many, many other states, is looking at school choice programs as an option to fix this. Only in Kentucky, we have a snag. You see, our state constitution says that the state is to provide a public school system. A similar thing in other state constitutions, but for some reason, our state Supreme Court priorly has interpreted that to mean that we can't have school choice in Kentucky. A system where parents are empowered to pick their schools they would like to go to, and then the state pays the tuition or at least part of it. In order for Kentucky to enjoy this type of system, a system that even the farthest left anti-school choice activists can only claim has no effect, while advocates for school choice can point to places where huge gains have been made. So worst case scenario, according to even the activists, is nothing happens we spend the same amount. But the best case, we spend the same amount and scores improve. Really a no-lose situation. Doesn't cost us any more and we have the opportunity to have better performing children. In order to achieve educational choice in Kentucky, we must therefore pass a constitutional amendment. Uh, and that we have to do that before a program can be realistically discussed. And passing an amendment doesn't mean school choice happens tomorrow. It means that legislators will now have the option to put together a program. 
Well, getting this amendment onto the ballot in 2024 is supposedly a top priority for our legislature this year, but Bashir is having none of it. His attacks against this include lines like, oh, well, this will defund public schools and send money to private schools that have no accountability. A broad claim, considering, well, the actual program doesn't exist yet, but also a statement that completely ignores that these schools will be accountable to someone. In fact, accountable to the people who at least should care the most about the kids and their educational outcomes, the child's parents. That is who the schools would be accountable to. Because if a school underperforms and doesn't provide the services and the learning that a parent's child needs, well, they are free now to pick a different school. It's a free market. These schools are now accountable to the parents. Perhaps Bashir's real issue is because if schooling becomes about the student's success and schools being held accountable by the parents, all of that fat, bloated salaries of school administrators might go away or at least be reduced. Let's take a look at the Kentucky Department of Education. The KDE, Kentucky Department of Education, has 67 people in it with salaries over $100,000 a year. To put that in perspective, the entire state's prison system, you know, a department that does a key function of government, handles criminal justice, or part of it at least, jails. They themselves operate facilities too. I mean, keep in mind, the school systems and building KDE doesn't, doesn't have school buildings and school systems. The school, the school districts have that. All they do is administer money and create regulations and provide resources to the schools. They don't have actual things like, I don't know, prisons to operate. So KDE has 67. The entire justice system in KY. This is juvenile justice. This is uh, state uh, uh, detention centers. This is all of all of that together. You know how many people they have being paid over 100000 a year? 27. KDE has 67 and our jails and, and, and juvenile justice centers and detention centers only have 27 people being paid over 100000 a year. I mean, shoot, KSP only has 103 and they're the entire police department for the state. They have detectives and other things that work out in rural areas. The entire Department of Revenue, you know the tax collectors, key function of our government to run collecting up your taxes, has 10 people paid over 100K a year. But somehow, KDE, which doesn't operate a school, has 67 people paid over $100,000 a year. You know, if education starts focusing on the student and not the government employees, well, we can't have that. The money can't go to the student. It's got to go to these fat administrative salaries. You see, that's the real concern. It's not about teachers or students. It's always been about the administrators. When you take a look at their union leaders of like our teachers unions and school unions here in Kentucky. You see many administrators, not very many teachers. I mean, even Jacqueline Coleman, Bashir's Lieutenant Governor, I mean, she claims she was a teacher and she was for at least seven, maybe 10 years at the most. Then she became a school administrator. 
but she didn't slug it out in the classroom for 20 years and is now advocating for teachers. No, she spent time as a school administrator until she was called up as lieutenant governor. She hopped between two different schools as a teacher, and then she landed that nice admin job and then a nonprofit job. And then found her, well, while she's working a nonprofit job, I guess, and then found herself as Bashir's lieutenant governor. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a school admin, but that's what Bashir is protecting. That's what Bashir's school plan is protecting. That's what he's going after. He's protecting school administrators, not teachers, not students, but administrators. When Take a look at his education plan. It's not a 10% raise for teachers. It's a 10% raise for everyone, not just the teachers. I mean, he'll use the teachers as cover to justify a 10% raise that then he's going to hand out to those all-important admins that earn way more money than teachers ever could hope to. And I think that's a real insidious thing about all of this. Because if it's about educational outcomes, if it's about the kids not protecting government employees, but how do we get our biggest bang for the buck for these kids? School choice is at least a chance at that. I mean, we have tried everything else and it's failing. I mean, what actual solutions to our failing school system has Bashir offered here? Andy says, well, we just need to spend more money, but he can't tell us exactly how much we need to spend to get the educational outcomes we need. He puts forward things like universal pre-K. But do we really think that if you get a hold of our kids another year or two early, that will somehow fix it when you've had our kids for nine years in eighth grade and not even half uh, in, in most of the schools, not even half of those kids are proficient in reading or math? Throw money at it. That's always the Democrats' solution, but they can't even tell you a dollar amount or how much it's going to take. They don't have a number because what they're worried about is if they do name a number, you might actually give it to them, and then they'll be expected to perform. It is clearly time for something different. I know there can be downsides to school choice and small communities, and we have to look at that, and when we craft the policy after the amendment passes, we have to take that into consideration. But once again, we can't have that discussion until the amendment has passed. Well, coming up, the leadership in the legislature has taken steps to make sure citizens become as disengaged as possible. That is the topic we're coming up with next for our podcast listeners. But for all of you watching on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Rumble, we're going to leave it here for you all. Head on over to the podcast form. But for you podcast listeners on Spotify, uh, Apple, um, iHeart, you know, Pandora, Amazon, all those podcast listeners stay with us. Cause after this, we're going to talk about how much the legislature hates the citizen or legislative leadership hates citizens, wants us to be disengaged and possible. We'll take a look at a policy they have going on right now. We'll be covering that after this short break. At this point in 2021, we'd already had a hearing and debates and conversation on a bill request 69, a bill that during session became House Bill 18. And despite the midsummer hearing and the push for it, the bill would never ever be called for a vote in a committee. What did that bill do? That bill was rather a simple piece of legislation put forward by Representative Matt Lockett 
in a Jesmond uh, County, Lexington, Jesmond, that's his district area. And what it did was it simply forbade schools from teaching that one race is inherently superior to another. A bill to truly outlaw the teaching of critical race theory in Kentucky. Because, of course, that's what critical race theory is. A belief that one race is inherently superior or inferior to the other. For those of you who don't understand what I mean by that, well, critical race theory teaches that somehow minorities can't be held to the same standards as white people, or at least white males, I guess, you know, intersectionality and whatnot. And CRT holds this belief. And so the passage of BR 69 became House Bill 18 would have outlawed any kind of policies that treat people differently based upon their skin color, something any non-racist should absolutely be supportive of, supportive of, sorry. And something that I think would shock all of you um, to hear that anybody would be against it. Yet, the bill wasn't the half measure to address CRT that the leadership in our legislature was looking for. They wanted to appear like they were doing something while actually doing nothing on the issue. So instead, they passed a bill by Max Wise, Senator Max Wise out of the Senate, that simply required the teaching of certain documents. No ban on CRT, no punishment for treating students differently based upon their skin color, nothing. This half measure gave legislators the ability to thump their chests and claim success when in actuality, what it did was, is it, did nothing to stop CRT while um, um, making the masses feel like they had done something. And that has allowed CRT and CRT principals to become dominant in our schools. That's why Fayette County Public Schools, uh, you know, have, have looked at and been looking at and, and look at all kinds of different policies. But to give you an example, Fayette County Public Schools is looking at different late policies based on a student's race. So if you're a minority, you're held to a different standard than a white child is if you're showing up late to school. In Jefferson County Public Schools, offering programs for only minority children, not just all at-risk youth, regardless of their skin color, but only minority children. Now, that is allowed to continue because, well, the legislature passed not even a half measure, but just enough to allow legislators to claim they did something while they did nothing and make those massive of conservative citizens and voters calm down enough that they can move on with doing other things. Another bill, House Bill 28, a bill to ban government vaccine mandates, greatly pushed and lobbied for by the citizens, not by giant corporations, but by citizens and voters. And while the protests and activism was able to push the vote forward, so it would the bill forward so it would get a vote in the House, it never received a vote in the Senate. The citizens pushing for and demanding these issues to be addressed has become a great problem to our legislative leadership. For they believe their job is first and foremost to make sure everyone in every seat keeps their job. They believe their job is to make sure the donors are satisfied. Now, keep in mind, we have a 30-seat majority. I understand. If we have a slim majority, you need every member you can get. you got to be careful about what bills you put forward because you don't want Republicans in swing districts taking hard votes that may lose them the middle, quote-unquote. 
but we don't have a slim majority. That same loser mindset that Republicans have that we need to rid ourselves of that I spoke about earlier has made our legislative leadership decide that the need to maintain a few jobs in their caucus, even though we have 30 seat majority, is more important than actually getting done what conservative voters across the entire state want the legislature to do. So how do you allow everyone to keep their seats? How do you enable legislators that feel like, well, they could lose their job if they're too conservative, but if they take hard votes and they vote against their conservative base, they may also lose their job from the Republicans, even when in the actuality, you know, in our state currently, we really don't need them in the legislature, the one or two or three that it may cost us to take hard votes. So because of that, in fact, they're actually hurting us. Because they throw R's next to their name, but they're really just D's. And it's an excuse because the belief is that, well, that is just the only type of person that can win that seat. However, now trying to keep that one seat changes behavior of the entire legislature. This phenomenon of conservative legislatures not getting work done, even when they have super duper uber majorities, is not only happening in Kentucky. In fact, the Daily Wire recently did a study and found that Republican legislators, legislative bodies, sorry, like ours, that are firmly in the majority have on average more liberal Republican members and more liberal results when compared to slim majority Republican legislatures. Why? Well, because the super duper, uber, uber, whatever majority legislators always believe that they have all the time in the world and their half measures are okay because there's always next year to revisit the issue, ignoring the fact that, well, maybe that is true for them, these decisions, these half measures, they still, one, affect people's lives and their inability to get done conservative things is affecting people's lives. But it's also that they ignore there is always something else to do. Our legislature has long years and short years in session. Coming up is a long year. Last year was a short year. And they have an excuse every other year, and they're always the same. On the short years, they say, well, we only have a short amount of time. We're really only supposed to come in and clean up what we did on the long years in order to get it done. And on the long years, their excuse is, well, you know, we've got our two-year budget to do because, of course, they do the budget every two years on the longer years. We've got our two-year budget to do, and that's going to take up most of our time. So they never seem to have time to get done the things that the citizens want them to do. But if the citizens push them enough, they'll take a half measure with a promise to revisit that they never get around to. They never return to it because unless we have large amounts of our citizens holding their feet to the fire, leadership doesn't want to touch items that are at all politically risky for them. Even if they're politically risky for just a few members and a few toss-up districts, they don't want to touch it. They'd rather be passing the regulations and laws that the average citizen doesn't understand, but serves the will of their donors. You know, in 2022, I ran against uh, Senator Douglas. He was new in office. He just won a special election a few months earlier, a special election that I didn't take part of because I wasn't in his district at the time. I was actually running in Senate District 12. But then the state Senate, because they hate me, redistricted me out of the 12th district, which was an open seat primary, and put me into Douglas's race because they believed that it would be harder for Douglas, uh, for me to beat Douglas. 
And so instead, they redistricted out myself and allowed now Senator Amanda Bledsoe to be able to take up an empty Republican seat, a non-incumbent Republican seat, without even having a primary challenger. So Douglas was new. And what was his first piece of legislation in 2022? A bill that was changing the definition of stroke centers. A bill that the average citizen has no idea why it's important at all. But it's something that the donors and the hospitals want it done. We don't know what it does. But that was his most important first piece of legislation he needed to get done. And that's, he got it done. It's what they wanted him to do. He got it done. And that in their mind, that in the mind of these legislators are the important work. You know, the fact that our government has regulated everything so much that we need stupid bills like that, that, that change definitions of things simply because that's the difference between a business succeeding or not is, is absolutely a testament to how large our government has become. And that isn't the important work. The important work should be serving the will of the people, not serving the will of corporations that you have put under your thumb due to regulations. It's like a weird cyclical cycle. You give, they give you money to create regulations that help them. You create regulations, but those regulations affect them. So they got to give you money instead of you just not regulating them at all. But if you drop the regulations, well, then they would have no reason to give you money. Yeah, well, then you couldn't fund your campaigns as people realize you're a horrible, horrible politician. Anyways, but the social issues um, and monetary decisions that actually affects citizens, not government. You know, monetary decisions that somehow make it where the government can make more money, that's important to them. But monetary decisions that are about making our lives better, they don't actually want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with social issues. Anything political, they want to stay away from. Anything that's hard to do, anything that takes political will, anything that will actually affect the future and everyday lives of citizens and make them better, they don't want to touch because it may mean they get a challenge or a few of their members may be challenged in more liberal districts, and they don't want that. So because of that, because they're tired of dealing with citizens demanding they actually do things that they run on, leadership has decided no more pre-filed bills. No one's allowed to pre-file a bill now. They only want those that are connected and in the know, you know, the people who roam the Capitol halls and sip bourbon while they talk with legislators about what they need from them in order to keep the money flowing into their accounts, what, what the legislators need to do for these donors and groups, so that way those donors and groups keep giving them money. They only want them to be in the know. And this is why, while we've heard of things like Safer Kentucky Act, covered that in a prior podcast, or CAR, Remember, CAR stands for Crisis Aversion Retentions Rights Act, which is uh, um, Rights Retention Act, sorry, which is a red flag law. Both pieces of legislation that it seems like citizens would have, you know, maybe some opinions on and even push back on parts or all of it, of course, when it comes to CAR. These laws that Republicans are proposing, we don't have the legislation. We don't see it. We haven't read it. We have no idea what it says. And that makes it harder to organize around it and push back against it. And they know it. Normally around this time, we'd be talking about a rally at the Capitol to push forward a few important bills that matter to the citizens, yet their rule chains have made that harder. And they know it. And it really throws mud on the whole for the people, by the people, you know, that pesky belief. It really shows what our current Republican leadership and the legislature truly thinks of us. They think we don't deserve an opinion. 
We're bothersome and we need to just shut up. We just don't understand. Well, I call on our legislators and you should call on yours that they actually care about the citizens. And if they believe government should be accountable to the people and not the people accountable to their government, I call on them to replace their leadership. I call on them to say that they no longer represent our values. Leadership and the Senate, the House no longer represent our values and failure to do so just means that, well, they believe they do represent their values. It means that those legislators do hold those values. If your legislator refuses to do it, it means that legislator might as well turn to you and say, I hate you. I don't want you involved. Now shut up and let these men run your lives and I'm not going to stop them. I'm actually going to enable them because they let me keep my job. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperator Show. I thank y'all so, so much for joining me. We'll be back here tomorrow at one o'clock. Have a great rest of your day.